We started a series last week called, uh, we're calling this Backward with the Story of Jesus is what we're calling our Advent series. And uh, going back, just to recap, we said in, in Luke 24, remember, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and with his fellow travelers there, he, he, he teaches like probably the greatest Bible study ever undertaken. He, he teaches them, these travelers, everything about himself and Moses and the prophets. Basically, he goes through the Old Testament and points out everything about himself. And it says that he opened their minds. He explained to them, interpreted them uh, about himself in scripture. Man, we would love to have the text of that, right? One day we'll ask him what all was in that. So, but, but he had to explain to them because Jesus is, is the, literally the Christmas gift that the world didn't see coming. Like, Totally, the greatest gift that the world didn't see coming. This, this week on social media, I asked the question, I said, what is the oddest Christmas gift you've, you've ever received? Something that made you scratch your head like, I, what in the world is, is up with this? And I got some really fun answers. Uh, first, a, a couple of weird ones. So somebody got a thimble collection. They, they don't connect, collect thimbles. They didn't care to collect thimbles, but they got a, a starter kit for collecting thimbles. And their thimble collecting ended the same day it began. They had, they had no interest. Um, somebody got a, a, can, a handheld can opener. Okay, it's, that's something. Somebody got a, a roll of dimes. Interesting, but you can still spin that. That works. But, but then it got weird. Um, somebody else got three glass mannequin heads for Christmas. It's scary. Uh, I, I love this one. Somebody got a pack of Clorox wipes for Christmas. You're nasty. Merry Christmas. Uh, <laughs> Somebody else got a pack of screwdrivers and one was missing and the box was taped back up. So somebody had a need and like, well, you know what? I'm going to just borrow one of these. Uh, This is odd. Somebody got uh, one of the giver's wisdom teeth, like a tooth wrapped up. So they said, I just wanted you to have some of my wisdom. Okay. Um, these last two are just amazing. Uh, this one lady got a, a king-size comforter, a king's, nice king-size feather comforter, but she's allergic to feathers and sleeps in a full-size bed. So it was kind of <laughs> weird. And I don't know why, this one's my favorite one. Last one, uh, this one person got a, a really nice coffee table book to which when they got it, they said, oh, well, we don't have a coffee table. And the giver said, well, I figured you'd just go buy one. So there's nothing like a gift that requires you to spend money, right? That's the gift that keeps on giving. So, uh, but Jesus is literally the, the, the gift the world didn't see coming, right? So he explains that and on the road to Emmaus. And what we're doing as a church, we're going back into the Old Testament and these four weeks, and we're picking out what we think are just some slam dunk, no brainer passages where, oh yeah, that's, that's Jesus, knowing all the time that, that there's, there's no one place in the Old Testament, there's no one verse or one passage or, or one chapter that fully fleshes out Jesus, pun intended, but rather what you have is this mosaic. You've got bits and pieces and chunks that when they all come together and you stand back and look at it, you're like, oh yeah, undeniably Jesus all over the Old Testament. So this morning, I'm really excited. This morning we get to click in a big chunk of the mosaic. I love this. It's just actually, as we were planning this, this sermon, this sermon series in our meetings, this was like, this passage was one of my favorites. So I was like, man, we, it'd be great if we could do this. I was so stoked about it. I was so excited that Jeff and mine were like, well, you're so excited, hotshot. You can just teach it. So here I am. So be careful how excited you get about scripture around teaching pastors. So, so anyway, that we're going to hit a big one this morning. But before we do that, I want to take our minds and thoughts to another place 
in the Gospels. We're going to stay New Testament for just a minute. And uh, this may be a little weird, but bear with me for just a minute. We're going to go to an event at the end of Jesus' life. After his arrest, after Gethsemane, after Judas' betrayal, you remember he's taken to the home of Caiaphas, Caiaphas the high priest. And this would be after midnight. So this is, you could speculate maybe around 1 or 2 a.m. And his mama used to say, if you're out after midnight, nothing good is happening. So you need to go home. But this is pretty devious what's going on. They sneak him off to Caiaphas' house. And what they're trying to do, they put on this sham of a trial right there in the middle of the night. And they're trying to find an accusation, a charge to stick on Jesus so that they can take him to Pilate and Pilate will kill him. So there's accusations flying all over the place. Peter is there. He's in the back kind of laying low watching what's happening. And, uh, and they're, they're, trying, they're looking for a charge, but, the, but it's kind of chaotic. They can't really find anything. Caiaphas gets frustrated and he turns to Jesus and he says, I charge you by the, son, by, I charge you by the living God Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, first, that is a funny statement. I wonder if Jesus, when when Caiaphas says, you know, swear to me by the living God, I wonder if Jesus just for a moment thought about raising his hand and saying, okay, I I swear by myself, I'm telling the truth. That would be amazing if that was in our Bible, right? But he says, swear to me, tell me, are you the Messiah, the Christ, the the Son of God? Now, we hear that question and we hear something really different this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection. Let me tell you what he wasn't asking him. He was not asking Jesus, hey, are you God? Are you born of a virgin? Are you God in the flesh? Are you the second person of the Trinity? That wasn't even on his radar. He didn't even have a paradigm for that, to ask Jesus that. Really, he's asking about his Messiahship. Son of God was a really generic term, oddly enough, in that day. Caesar was called Son of God. David was called Son of God. You know, we kind of get this. We're called, we call ourselves children of God, kind of a similar idea. So he's really asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the leader that's gonna come back and, and restore Israel, restore the kingdom? Are you a general? Are you a king? Just tell us if that's who you are. And I think this is what, this is kind of what Caiaphas is going for here. If they get him to say yes to that, if they get Jesus to say, yes, that's me, then they probably can take Jesus to Pilate and get him killed for treason. If he's claiming to be the king, which oddly enough, remember, that's what was over him on the cross, king of the Jews. They get him to say, yeah, I'm trying to be the king here. They take him to Pilate. Pilate, this man is treasonous against Caesar. He's stirring up a revolt. They can probably get him killed for that. But Jesus gives them so much more. Jesus is cooler than the other side of the pillow. And he says this back to Caiaphas. He says, look, those are your words. Let me tell you in my words who I am. And Jesus goes on to say this. From now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's it. That's his answer. From now on, you'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that seems harmless enough. It actually makes me think of care bears coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, those little demonic bears from the 80s. It doesn't seem that, just 19 little words in the Greek, 19 little words, one sentence, and Caiaphas freaks out, goes into a full out rage, rips his clothes, They start beating Jesus right there. They spit on him. They mock him. They hand him over to guards. He's beaten more. And if this is around 2 a.m. in the morning, by morning, he's hanging on the cross. That must have been quite an answer, right? 
So with that one little sentence, Jesus clicks into place a big piece of the mosaic of himself in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament and the New Testament come crashing together in this one little phrase. So we wanna know, really, what was so outrageous about this one little sentence that Jesus claimed about himself? And to do that, I know that's a strange place to start this morning on a Christmas message toward the end of Jesus' life, but what we're gonna see is what Jesus says there that takes him to his death is actually a earth-shaking claim about his birth. And to unpack that, now we do have to go backward with the story. So turn with me to Daniel 7. Daniel, the book of Daniel, 7 in your Old Testament. Hold your place in Daniel. Because that we're actually going to get a big running start into Daniel this morning. We're going to back up even further than that, all the way to, to the beginning. And, and Monty did some of this last week, so we're just going to recap this first part. We're going to start at the beginning of the story and get a running start into Daniel. And I'm going to borrow some pics and some content from a Bible study called The King's Highway. And I know I have permission for this because this is actually a Bible a study that I came up with a few years ago because I love studying this. I love the big grand story of scripture, the big meta narrative, the big threads that run all through scripture. So a few years ago, I put this together just because I love doing this and teaching this and talking about it. And I split up the big story of scripture into different sections to help kind of organize it in my own brain and maybe it'd be helpful. Uh, Uh, And I do it in the motif of a road trip, which seems very relevant this morning as Jesus is talking on a road trip about himself in scripture. So I break it up into pieces along the imagery of a road trip. And uh, I named it King's Highway after there's there's an old interstate that runs, well, it's not an interstate, but back in Jesus' day, it was kind of like an interstate that ran north to south in Israel called the King's Highway. So I I named it after that. Uh, Oddly enough, um, golly, probably 15, 16 years ago, uh, Monty, you don't know this, your, your daughter's uh, now father-in-law, I heard him teach a series called Route 66 that did the same thing. And I, that stuck with me so, all these years later. I was like, that is so cool. He walked through the 66 books of the Bible. So I came up with my own little name, uh, King's Highway. But that kind, of, that kind of study just always just did something to me because if you get the grand picture of the Bible, the 30,000 foot view, what God's doing through creation and, and the redemptive history, you end up getting a really close up view to Jesus, the person and work in Jesus. So I love studying this. So first thing about a road trip is you got to have a destination, right? So in the Bible, the Bible lays out the destination really early. And we talked about this some last week. In the first section of, of how I break up the kind of the story of scripture, I call it the farm, the farm. And Genesis one and two, we talked a little bit about this. So we'll zip through these first two. Uh, the scenery here is God creates God creates, obviously. And isn't it interesting, I thought about this as I was playing this, isn't it interesting how many stories we love, movies and whatnot, that start in some kind of farm, idyllic little setting, Superman or, or Zootopia or that old movie, uh, Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox. I don't know if you remember that. Even something like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit starts in this little farm, little community, and then they go out from there. Just interesting how many times that shows up in great, grand, epic stories. But... Uh, so here's the scenery at this first section, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates. Secondly, man is to rule, care, cultivate, and work in the world. And as Monty talked about last week, uh, there's a stewardship element there. It's the creative commission of the world. And that man is to multiply and spread out and bear God's image. Super important this morning. That's the task. 
Want to know why man is here? Well, the Bible tells us really early on to multiply, be fruitful, spread out, and represent God all over the world. He doesn't need us to do it. He could do it all fine and well by himself, but he chooses to use man as ambassadors, as vice regents to spread out and show the world what God is like, bearing his image. That's section one. The next section, how I organize this, I call the wreck. (laughs) And this is what we really dove into last week, Genesis 3. Things don't go so well, really quickly. I remember when I was growing up, um, my parents are, are great parents, Godly, just wise people. My father's a Southern Baptist pastor, uh, retired now. But one of the biggest mistakes they ever made is when I'm a 16-year-old guy, they brought the family a white 1989 RS Camaro. And this, it just... It just looked annoyingly, whatever that, it, it was just, that's a terrible choice because we hadn't had that thing any time before I put that thing in a ditch going around a corner too fast. And, you know, there I stood, side of the road, it's raining, I'm, tears are flowing down into my high school quality mustache and there's that white RS Camara <laughs> sitting in the ditch. Bad idea. Mankind really quickly, literally and figuratively runs into a tree, right? That we talked about last week. Man rebels against God. Here's the scenery in this section. There's spiritual rebellion as well. I love that Monty talked about this. There's a serpent and he's been inhabited by what we now know as the, the, the accuser, Satan. There's also a spiritual rebellion taking place as well as an earthly one. And then sin and death enter the world, and it's a bleak setting, right? It's, it's a sad thing because, of course, we know Adam and Eve are forced from the garden. They're, they're no longer walking and dwelling in the midst with God as they were in the garden. And it's a bleak place, but as, as last week told us, hope is given, grace is given, there's a way forward. And where we had a big problem, God had a big promise going forward. So the mission continues. And the next section is what I, I, I break it up, Genesis 4 through 11. I call this the pile up. The pileup, that's a picture in front of the avenue right about now in Christmas time. Everybody's shopping. Um, the pileup, because the only thing worse than two people rebelling against God is a whole bunch of people rebelling against God and the chaos and mess that ensues from that. Um, you've got Cain and Abel, of course. Um, you've got the, the flood. You've got Genesis 6 and all the evil things going on there. And then you get to Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 is a huge chapter. It kind of loses some of the spotlight from Genesis 3. You talk about Genesis 3 a lot. Genesis 3 talks a lot, talks about why the world is broken from sin. But I love Genesis 11 for what it tells us about how the world is broken from sin. Really important chapter for us this morning. If you remember there, everybody loves the story of the Tower of Babel. That's a famous story. I I love that story in the children's, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible that, you know, we read through with our kids. You get to that chapter. It's so good, so rich. So we love this chapter, we, we love this story, but it tells us so much about how the world is broken by sin. If you remember, uh, mankind is building a tower and they're, they say two things. We're gonna make a name for ourselves because we don't wanna spread out. Now, what was the mission? The mission, that was exactly, that's exactly opposite of the mission. The mission was to spread out and bear God's image. Suddenly mankind in rebellion wants to clump up and make a name for themselves. So, as the story goes, the Lord comes down and undoes what mankind is doing. Undoes what mankind is doing and confuses their language. And this is so interesting, makes them spread out. By golly, you're going to spread out, says the Lord. 
Now, this is a, a bleak, dark place again that man finds himself in. And there's a spiritual component at work here too that you see throughout, uh, throughout old, the Old Testament. There's, obviously, there's Satan. There's a spiritual rebellion going on. There are spiritual forces at work in these nations and, and all over the world. And, and Deuteronomy says, clearly says to these nations, you know, when you think you're, you're sacrificing to these other gods, Lord G, you're really sacrificing to demons, there are spiritual forces at work in man and in these spread out nations as well. So, so there's two things. Um, well, first of all, at this point in the mission, it's, it looks dark, but at this point in the mission, has the plans and purposes of God failed? Yes or no? No, of course not. Still going, the mission is still on. And what you see out of Genesis 11 is 70 nations are created out of this little incident, 70 nations. I'll give you three guesses what nation isn't included in the 70. Israel, Israel's not in there, they don't exist yet. Thus comes chapter 12, the next section of the little road trip, I'm breaking up scripture. Genesis 12 through Malachi is what I had. I came up with this, the country, the mission's still on. And God is going to raise up a people, a nation, to carry out the mission. Genesis 22, 18, he says to Abraham, remember this? In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God says, we're going to get the nations back. And you, my people, my country, my nation, you are going to now show the world what God is like. Blessing will come through you to the world. And as we've talked about many times here, and especially in, in Luke several times, this doesn't go well yet again. In fact, this is my favorite meme. This is Israel. Oh, that's basically Israel through the Old Testament. Poor guys. We would have done no better, so we're not standing over them in shame. But that's Israel. Things don't go well, and, and they fail. In fact, Ezekiel 5 says, they fail. Their iniquity and evil is even greater than the surrounding nations. Why? Because they had the revelation of God. They had God's presence in the temple. They had a way to live with God, God's word and God's law, and they still couldn't do it. Their iniquity and their evil surpassed the other nations. So big fail. And as such, God judges them. God warned them back in Deuteronomy. If you can't live according to the covenant, here's what I'll do. And he does it. This is so interesting. First thing he does is he ends the nation. You're out of your homeland. You're out of your country. And he disperses them. Isn't that interesting? There's that idea again. By golly, you're going to spread out. So in judgment, God now spreads out the people of Israel into the other nations. And the temple is ransacked, the people are dispersed, the nation's all but over, the, the people are exiled. And, and again, we find ourselves at a dark, bleak place in the mission. But answer me again, are the plans and purposes of God failed? No, no, not at all. Even in this dark time, one really, really important, huge thing is still happening, even while the people of God are dispersed. God is still speaking to them huge. And that brings us to Daniel now. So look with me now at Daniel 7. Daniel is one of the young men. He's a young, a young man, probably upper class, and he's carried off to Babylon to the enemy to work for the government. That's just salt in the wound, right? We got taken over. We're done. Now I got to go work for the enemy. That's just salt in the wound. And he works for King Nebuchadnezzar. For you VeggieTales fans, that's the big cucumber that sang the bunny song. So I'm telling you what, VeggieTales, 
It sticks with you. Uh, bunny song, Vintage Veggie Tales. And the central message of Daniel is this. The central message is un- unmistakable. Despite what it looks like, this is what he says to Daniel and through Daniel. Despite what it looks like, I'm still in control, says God. Despite all the craziness and the darkness and the seeming failure of the mission, God is still in control. And that's what he gives and tells Daniel via vision. This is apocalyptic imagery we're stepping into here in Daniel 7. And that means two things. First, there's a lot of speculation about details and what this means or that means. You know, we're not going to run down any tangents or rabbit trails this morning about, the, you know, things, that, you know, it's just endless. And that's always been the case. You can just speculate and, and best guesses of what this little piece means. So it's mysterious. It's mysterious. But most importantly, number two, about apocalyptic imagery. This is most important. Anytime God gives his people a vision for the future, it's to give hope and encouragement in the present. And that's exactly what he's doing and saying to Daniel. So let's pick up um, there at chapter seven. I'm gonna read all this, even though uh, we might not unpack all of it again. But uh, Daniel chapter seven, you know, I'm gonna pick up, let me tell you what, for time, I'm just gonna summarize one through eight. Uh, so you're looking there, chapter, verse one through eight. I'll tell you what's going on. Daniel sees four beasts. And these four beasts, we know, pretty clear, represent worldly powers and empires and kingdoms. That makes sense, given Daniel's position, right? The, the circumstance he finds himself in. So he sees these four beasts, their powers and their empires of the world. And it seems like in the vision, they are in control. They have dominion. They have rule. But things are about to take a turn. Now let's pick up reading at verse 9. Chapter 7. As I looked, said Daniel... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand sat before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So, Interesting here. Now, this is pretty easy at first. The Ancient of Days. This is pretty easy imagery to, to unpack. That's, that's obviously God. That's obviously the God of Israel, Yahweh. This, this imagery, this picture imagery he's doing there matches perfectly with, with other language used about God in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel. This uh, Ancient of Days terminology, his clothing and hair were white. White hair in the Old Testament, that means wisdom. You listen to someone with white hair. All of us with non-white hair need to hear that. You need someone with white hair had something wise to say. So this is obviously about Yahweh, the God of Israel. And I love that he's calling court to session. Interesting that Jesus throws back from that sham of a trial to another kind of trial where God has opened the books and he's gonna pronounce judgment on these empires. Now, picking up verse 11. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and that's a symbolic, we, won't, we don't even have to get into what that horn might be. But, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The big idea here, easy to see, is that these empires, these beasts, these worldly powers and empires, dominion and power is taken away. They're done. You're toast. Your time is over. Picking up there at, at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, that is an awesome vision, right? That's pretty amazing. And what we see there is, okay, we just said the dominion and the power is taken away from the worldly powers and the empires and these beasts, and it's given, dominion and power is, is handed over, authority is handed over to this cloud rider. Now that's an interesting word, cloud rider. There in your outline, let's talk about this term cloud rider. Rider of the clouds was a common term in, in, in this time, in the Old Testament time. Israel used it, surrounding nations used it, and it was just kind of language for deity. A rider in the clouds was a god. So the, so the Canaanite god, the, 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 the false god that the Canaanites worshiped, Baal, that we hear about so often, Baal was a huge thorn in Israel's idolatry side. Baal is often called in their language, rider of the clouds. Now, I love this. I don't know how that hits with you, but I love this because what this is really doing, the Bible is talking smack about these other lowercase g gods. I love that. Are you familiar? I'm sure most of you are familiar with like sports talk and a lot of times sports talk and sports radio and, and sports fans talk about the goat in their sport, the greatest of all time, the goat. It's this term and, you know, uh, uh, football players talking, you know, is, it, is it Manning? Is it, is it Montana? Or is it, is it Tiger? Is it Jack Nicholas? Is it LeBron? Is it Jordan? Everybody's got a goat, right? And it's just this term. They're just arguing back and forth. Well, here's the real goat. Here's the real goat. I'm, let me, as an aside, Jeff's not here this morning. I'll be so glad when this football season is over. I'm so tired of hearing about Clemson. I can't. Oh my gosh. My Lanta. So... So they love arguing about the goat. Well, the Bible, the right, God through his spirit and his, and his prophets love, they're talking smack. They're basically saying, let me tell you who the real cloud rider is. And it's Yahweh, the God of Israel. Over and over again, Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, Psalm 104, Isaiah 19, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is the one and only legitimate rider in the clouds. And every instance of cloud rider in the Old Testament is directly about Yahweh, the God of Israel. Every instance, except one. And it's this one in Daniel 7 this morning. Suddenly, cloud rider is assigned to this person that's brought before Yahweh, brought before the Ancient of Days. This is wild. The, the cloud rider, it says, is one like the son of man. Now let's talk about son of man. Son of man is another common term used all over the place in the Old Testament. Uh, in Ezekiel, Yahweh, the God of Israel, God calls Ezekiel over and over again, son of man, son of man, son of man. I say this to you, son of man. Let me speak to you, son of man. And son of man is a very complex term, very deeply theological and biblical and, and highly complicated. Actually, it's not. It simply means this. Son of man means human human being. And there's even this idea of a vulnerable, fragile, mortal human being. Okay, that makes the hair on my arm stand up. Because here in the Old Testament, clear as day, what God shows Daniel, what God shows Daniel is the hope and the future for the people of God and the mission of God 
What he shows them is that it all is going to come down to this God-man. This God-man. How stunning is it that the rescue plan for humanity, that the plan for salvation, it's not just about God coming to earth. It's not just about that. God had come to earth. God had been on earth. God was on earth with Adam and Eve. God spoke to Moses face to face. God sat down with Abraham. God dwelled in the temple. His presence dwelled there. An Israelite would just walk out their front door after coffee and look across and say, oh, there's where the presence of God is, right there in the temple. God had been to earth before, but the, the earth-shaking game changer was God was going to come as a God-man. The great hope is God as a human being. Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. And therefore, what man has failed to do, what man has failed to do in blessing the nations and showing the world what God is like, the God-man is going to come and do perfectly. The God-man is going to come and do what man could not accomplish. And through the, uh, John Wolver, a uh, theologian, a uh, professor, he said this about the, the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. Uh, John Wolver said, uh, though the doctrine of the deity of Christ is generally recognized as the indispensable fundamental Christology, the doctrine of his true humanity is equally important. Those who deny the true humanity of Christ, such as modern Christian science, are just as effective at destroying the Christian faith as those who deny his deity. There is so much joy and comfort to be taken from the humanity of Christ. I feel like I almost overlook that sometimes, thinking about his godship and his deity. There's so much joy and comfort. So let's take a moment here, there at the bottom of your outline, to highlight four ways that Jesus' humanity is a grace and a gift and a blessing to us. There at the bottom of your outline, number one, it took the Son of Man to show us what God is like. John 1 tells us that no one had seen God, but now Jesus has made him known. That's amazing. The, the, the word there in the Greek for made him known is the word we get our word exegete from. That's a big old theological seminary word. It just means explain and interpret. So literally, Jesus interprets and explains. Jesus exegetes God for us. John later, uh, earlier, John 1 refers to Jesus as the word. Logos was a power-packed word. Greeks thought logos was, was, was the divine organizing principle of the universe. And John says, yeah, that's Jesus. Jesus is the logos of God. We sing earlier this morning, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's one of my favorite songs. I love that song every Christmas. We sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And, you know, as, as, as somebody who looks over lyrics all the time and is wondering about lyrics and sings lyrics charitably and questions lyrics and I interact with y'all's questions about lyrics, I would love to ask Charles Wesley about that lyric one day. And I will. Veiled in flesh. Veiled means to hide and to cover and obscure. Jesus did the opposite of that. I would just say, hey, Charles, maybe we should change it to unveiled. Jesus unveiled the Godhead for us to see. We never knew exactly what God looked like in, in, until Jesus. Jesus has made him known. In John 14, 9, remember Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus in his humanity, the Son of Man. It took a Son of Man to show us what God is like. Secondly, it took the Son of Man to show us how to be human. Uh, 
how to be human. God was not content to just shout it from the heavens, but he sent God, the God-man, as our perfect example and model to imitate. All the characteristics that God created humanity to have and portray are in Jesus. He's our example, First John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus is our example, how to live, how to love, how to value, how to grieve, how to rejoice, how to pray, how to suffer. Jesus is our perfect model. And, it's, and that's really the Christian life, right? That we talk so much about, about around here. That's cultivating a, a, a connected life as a disciple. It's by the spirit of God and the people of God and the word of God, slowly over time being made into the likeness of God, the image of Christ who is God. That's the Christian life. And see what that does, right, is that gets us back to the mission. We're in Christ's image, we're bearing his image, and, and then the Great Commission says what? Go into the nations, there's that idea again, spread out and show them what I'm like and teach them as I've taught you. Jesus shows us how to be human in his humanity. Thirdly, only the Son of Man could sympathize with us. This is huge for us. In our every temptation and struggle, our Savior can relate. Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Without sin. Jesus experienced greater strain in temptation than us. Now, how would you say that? I mean, he's God, right? Doesn't he get a pass? I love what uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem says about this. He says, you know, Jesus is like the championship weightlifter or championship marathon runner who succeeds. Like it's, it's only the weightlifter who successfully lifts the weight over their head and holds it there who really knows how heavy it is, right? It's only the marathon runner, you know, I would be out around mile seven. It's only the marathon runner who makes it to the end who knows just how hard it was to run those 26 miles, right? Jesus is that. He can sympathize and he did it all while living in perfect obedience to the Father. Only a fully human and fully sinless Jesus can sympathize with us in our temptations and encourage us in our obedience to God. Only the Son of Man can sympathize. And then lastly, it took the Son of Man to take our place, of course, to take our place. First Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Who the man? Christ Jesus, the man. Humanity, Jesus' humanity makes him eligible as our substitute and our representative. Uh, Anselm of Canterbury, a uh, thousand years ago, I loved how he wrote about this. He wrote a book called Why God Became Man. And he said this, only God could effectively die for sinners, but only a man should die for sinful man. And only an innocent man can take the place of the condemned. And so since Jesus is God, his life has infinite value for those of us who believe. Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, by the one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It took the son of man to take our place. So that takes me back to where we started at the house of Caiaphas, Jesus' answer. It's a loaded answer. Jesus says to him, you know what? I'm the cloud riding son of man, fully God, fully man. And how amazing is it 
how beautifully ironic, right, that that claim, that statement, that he's fully God and fully man, that's the, the answer that gets him fast-tracked to the cross. All the while, the truth of that claim is exactly who we needed him to be on the cross, the God-man taking our place. The Son of Man is the gift the world never saw coming. We rejoice in the resurrection. We are sobered at the cross of Christ. We, are, we marvel at Jesus' obedient life to the Father. But I love every time, every, I think I say this every year, my favorite quote by J.I. Packer. But what really gets me, all that other stuff is completely logical. Once I can get in my brain the mind-bending reality, the game changer of God, holy God, wanting to be born, the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully God, fully man. That is what the world never saw coming and exactly the Savior we needed. Pray with me this morning. Oh, Jesus, we're grateful for you today. We're grateful for your birth, your life, your death, your resurrection, and your one day coming again. And uh, this morning, even as we've opened up your word and we see, uh, we, we rejoice that you are God and we rejoice that the God, that you became man. So we take strength from that, that we don't have a, a distant high priest who can't sympathize with us. We rejoice that, that you, the God-man, took our place and there's good news, that's the good news of the gospel, that you're, now your obedience becomes our obedience. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us how to live in light of that, on mission, by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Word of God, encouraged by the, the people of God, uh, to be on the mission of God, uh, bearing your image and telling the world about the good news. We love you, and it's in your name. We pray that together this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close, take just a moment, and I pray, you know, the, the, the so what this morning, as you take a moment and pray before God and, and what would be particularly meaningful for you this morning, I just, I just pray, my, my whole prayer this this morning was that let's just exalt Jesus. I just want Jesus exalted, the God man. So maybe take a moment and those four things at the bottom of your outline, maybe take a second and, and uh, pray like, Lord, what, what would, which of those would be particularly meaningful this morning to you? You take a moment in your own heart and mind to, to, pr to pray and seek the Lord on that.